This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings. Welcome to another episode of the ATS Reading List podcast brought to you by the American Thoracic Society's section on medical education and trainees interested in medical education. I am PJ Gary, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Duke. Hi, guys. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Parth Raleigh to discuss two foundational articles on pulmonary embolism treatment. We'll discuss the 2002 MAPIT-3 trial and the 2014 PITHO trial. Both were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Raleigh is an Associate Professor of Medicine of Thoracic Medicine and Surgery at Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He completed his pulmonary and critical care training at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh, where he is a chief fellow. His research interests include pulmonary embolism, healthcare disparities, and an integration of bedside ultrasound. We're excited to get his view of these articles and help you make a dent in your reading list. So let's get into it. Parth, I must say, we're absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today. I have lost count at this point how many residents I've shared yours and Dr. Kreiner's 2018 Blue Journal review on submassive PE with. So for any of our listeners out there looking for a great read on submassive PE, we've included a link to that article in the show description. But Parth, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, Yes, that article is still one of my favorite articles. And trust me, I also read that article once in a while to get my references jot down. I read that article in preparation of this talk. So yes, thank you. Perfect. Well, welcome. So both of the studies we'll be discussing today include patients with submassive PE. Do you mind quickly defining massive or intermediate risk PE for our audience and talking about why this patient population is particularly important? No, I think, I think you, this is a perfect question to segue into our submassive PE. So I think one thing that I want all the audience and the listeners to understand that when we define or classify PE, we try to put them in these three categories of low risk, uh, intermediate risk, or submassive, or um, massive PE. In reality, the PE hemodynamic spectrum is like a pendulum. People swing from one hemodynamics to other category very fast and swiftly. So I think one of the mistakes that people do that we box them into one category and we tend to forget about them. And I think this is what this trial kind of showed in the, particularly in the observational arms. But I think the one thing that I want audience to understand that uh, uh, this is a hemodynamic pendulum that swings and we hope that your patient remains on the low risk or intermediate low risk side and not to swing on the other side. When they start showing the signs of deterioration, you want to escalate your treatment accordingly. Going back to the classification, I think uh, low risk PEs are the patients which are very low risk, doesn't need more classification and those are easy to manage those patients. Massive PE is also a spectrum. Example, like the classic definition of massive PE is like a stolic brush pressure loss than 90 for 15 minutes or a drop in blood pressure more than 40 from the baseline or a cardiac arrest. Some, some societies will include syncope also as a part of that guidelines. This is also another extreme of the spectrum. Uh, when you, and then anything in between is a submassive PE, which usually is a word that we used to use. We are shying away from that word and try to use the word intermediate risk PE. So by in terms of incidence, the intermediate PE or a submassive PE constitute your 50 to 60% of your uh, PE classification. 
what is also interesting that if you look at the data, uh, when you kind of dive into that, the latest ESC guidelines, European Society of Cardiology guidelines, divide this submassive PE or intermediate risk PE into a two, two further classification, intermediate low risk and intermediate high risk. You may you want to hear people saying low risk submassive or high risk submassive. That's completely understandable as long as people understand what we are trying to define. Intermediate low risk PE or a low risk submassive PE would have some markers of um, severity in terms of what we call it as SPESI score, which is simplified PE severity index score. But those patients tend to behave more like a low-risk patient, and we tend to manage them the same way that you would do for the low-risk patient, meaning then trying to manage them with anticoagulation. In the other group is the intermediate high-risk PE, which are the patients who have the elevated SPESI score, but also have the markers or the biomarkers of RV dysfunction and the imaging characteristic of RV dysfunction on ECHO and CTPA. They are just not hypotensive. So they tend to be more closely closely towards this massive PE risk category. And when you divide the intermediate PE into like these two categories, 10 to 15% of the patients in intermediate PE risk group are the ones towards the intermediate high risk group. And they are the ones that are closer to the high risk or massive PE spectrum. Still majority of your submassive or intermediate risk PE are intermediate low risk, and they tend to behave more like a low risk PE where they remain stable. That was an excellent run through the, the classifications. Thank you, Parth. And given this difference in society definitions when it comes to this risk stratification, I personally try to keep a reference on hand when talking through this. I'll admit, Parth, I adapted this somewhat from your 2018 reference, but over the years, I've kept a table in order to keep track as these guidelines have adapted. And for our listeners and, and anyone else in the audience, you can find this table and Dr. Raleigh and Dr. Kreiner's awesome paper in the show notes, as we previously mentioned. No, I think, and I think, I think that's, that's, that's so great because I think one of the things that, I think one of the simplest ways I would add on to that table is that think about when you identify your patient is submassive P, but is not hypotensive yet. The intermediate high risk is where you want to have more and more evidence of RV dysfunction. So echo images, CAT scan images and the biomarkers. And that's basically what makes it all positives, what makes it intermediate high-risk PE. So I think that's very take-home point. Look for RV dysfunction on imaging or your biomarkers. And great resources there. Um, so these two studies involved systemic thrombolytic therapy as interventions with submassive PE. And at least to me, it makes plenty of sense that we give patients with massive PE thrombolysis as a rescue especially in the absence of contraindications. Why do you think there's such a push to study thrombolysis in patients with submassive PE? Yeah, I, I, th I, think, it's, I think it's a very important uh, spectrum. I think as we go into your, uh, I, I think as we go into both the studies that we're gonna discuss today, I think we don't know which category of uh, submassive PE are gonna go towards uh, massive PE. And still today we are in 2022. I think since the paper that was published, the MAPET trial in 2002, and then Pietho in 2014, we have known, we have gone better into a risk stratification process, but still you can't identify which patients will walk into the door and will have a massive PE. Also, I think the reason why I want to study those patients, because uh, as we'll go into this trial, one in four on anticoagulation arm patients tend to decompensate where the escalation is needed. 
mortality risk changes drastically. Your submassive may have a mortality anywhere between five to 10%. When you go into a massive PE category, one in four patient dies. A lot of PE patients are healthy patients. Those are the patients who may not be walking around with multiple other comorbidities. So I think that is, so I think that is the mortality rate overall into intermediate high-risk PE and a massive PE is somewhat unacceptable. Those are not terminally ill lung cancer patients. Some of them are a healthy group of patients with maybe with comorbidities. So I think, I think that's why I want to identify them early. And I think we want to identify which subgroups of submassive PE patients are the ones that may benefit from thrombolysis. And I think that's why the that has been an ongoing event. And I think towards the end, I think I'll also bring in a trial, which is actually starting um, to recruit, uh, still looking at the same question that has been looked back at MAPIT in 2002. Well, I know we could probably talk about the potential utility of systemic thrombolysis here, but why don't we get into today's articles? We'll start with the 2002 MAPIT-3 trial. This was a randomized controlled trial that was completed at multiple centers in Germany. And the protocol randomized patients with submassive or intermediate risk PE, defined as those diagnosed with acute PE, but without evidence of shock or cardiovascular collapse, to the combination of heparin plus alteplase 100 milligrams versus heparin alone. Parth, I have a couple of questions for you in regards to this. First, what do you make of the submassive or intermediate risk PE patients that were included in this study? Along similar lines, is there anything that we should keep in mind about these two study arms? And then secondly, what about the fact that transthoracic echocardiogram or right heart catheterization was not performed routinely in all patients enrolled in this study? No, I think I think that's a great question. So I think uh, I think diving into the inclusion criteria, I think if I do a trial today, and if you look at the trial that are being done in 2022, I would say a lot of the patients who were recruited in those trials, I mean, in the MAPET-3 trial will not be included. The definition of RV dysfunction was very vague because they also had an EKG-based criteria, which we know is nothing but specific as a science of RV dysfunction. Also, the right heart cath. I mean, who does a right heart cath in 2022 in an acute PE patient to find out the hemodynamics? Uh, because they also allowed that to go into fact. That just makes me think that, I, that that's not what we will do today. I think, so those were the couple of comments. I think a lot of patients would not have made to, they would have, yes, they would have still made our submassive PE or intermediate PE risk PE criteria. But I think I think what we want to study or what we want to identify in 2022 is that which intermediate high-risk PE patients would benefit from intervention. I think, as, as I said, I think even in intermediate risk PE, uh, the biggest chunk is the intermediate low risk and those patients probably should be avoided. I don't think this trial had at that time, we had an insight to diversify that group into that subgroups. But I, 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 think, I think it was a, one of the foundation trials and I think we still refer back because that trial still taught us a bit. I think what was interesting also that the escalation, and I think we may go into it in a couple of more next few minutes, but even the escalation, when do we escalate? Uh, there was no predefined endpoints on escalation of the in the in the treatment arms also. So it was kind of a little bit more subjective also. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, with that in mind, it's clear that patients with submassive PE should probably be considered on this spectrum. We talked about the pendulum swinging. Depending on where they are in that spectrum, the risk of compensation may vary. Is this what kind of what MAPIT3 was getting at? 
Yes, absolutely. I think uh, I think MAPIT three and Python both. I think kind of showed that it's a pendulum because you look at the rate of I mean, the, even the primary efficacy endpoint was looking at the at the end of the hospitalization. Most of this escalation happens like probably around two to three day mark uh, within first two or three days. And I think this is exactly what it defines that patients are entering in the hospital and then they are having a treatment escalation. One thing we also have to be careful that these are a randomized large controlled trials, right? So that means that patients are watched like a Hawkeye. In the real world, that does not happen. This may be the submassive PE patient. We say, hey, RV looks fine. And the patient may be on the floors. And then they slowly deteriorate into this right heart uh, dysfunction and progressive shock that may get undiagnosed. So I think I think authors have clearly mentioned in discussion and into some of the reviews that led to this article that yes, even in the trials, we saw that there was a lot of DS, I mean, escalation that happened in the observational arm. But I think in the real world, that effect may be even higher if you start boxing those patients into submassive and say, hey, I'm going to do this or not do this. I was also struck by the secondary outcomes in this study. There were zero intracranial hemorrhages in either study arm. And there was only one fatal bleed. And that fatal bleed occurred in a patient randomized to heparin alone. Do you think that this is a reflection of a highly selected study population and that maybe we're seeing artificially low rates of bleeding complications or is this something else? No, this is absolutely, I think, uh, I think you bring up a great point. I think what happened here is that if I understand correctly, the trial was stopped after the interim positive analysis. So I think because interim analysis showed such a drastic difference in the outcome, trial was stopped earlier. So I think if we had this, say if this trial was extended like a Python trial where we had 1,000 patients versus 200-odd patients, we would have maybe there would be an appropriate opportunity to look at the incidence of bleeding. And number two, I think uh, the bleeding that we saw here was a little unrealistic because that doesn't, we know that just being on heparin, people bleed all the time. So I think, I think not having... And in ICH, maybe I buy that, but like even having like very low incidence of uh, major bleeding in the randomized controlled trial of this substance kind of makes me think that it may not be a truly reflective of um, what we would have seen if this trial was to produ uh, produce. So I think positive interim analysis and stopping the trying early, sometimes um, you miss out on those uh, secondary outcomes that you are looking at because you stop based on your primary efficacy outcome. Uh, you may not stop, the, you may not continue the trial, which I think was the right thing to do, not to continue the trial to looking for the secondary outcomes, which was bleeding and uh, bleeding outcomes. I think it's, I think your point is well taken. And I, and I think this is not the only trial that showed that. I think if you, uh, I just want listeners also to go to the other trial, which probably will be putting on the reading list called MOPET trial, M-O-P-E-T-T -T trial, which is simultaneously done a couple of years later, which looked at the slightly reduced dose TPA of 50 milligram, looking at the kind of the similar outcomes. And that also has zero bleeding risk. And that also trial was also single center, 100 patients. And then all of a sudden, two years later, you have the huge PIOTA trial where it's all about bleeding. So I think it has to do with patient selection. I think a lot of older patients were excluded in this trial. Less than, oh, age 80 was a cutoff for the MAPED trial, which was not the case for other trials. So I think combination of primary efficacy on endpoints reaching early and not having a longer uh, more patients in the trial probably led to this magical no bleeding events, uh, which is hard to buy. I'll tell you in the real world, the bleeding rate with the TPA, I think we have just a paper coming up in uh, general of vascular surgery. 
in the real world, the bleeding rate with a TPA is close to 30%, the major bleeding rate. So that's a real world. Again, trial world is different from a real world, but this is unacceptably low bleeding rate in the RCG trial. Another question about anticoagulation. So I remember a pharmacist from about a year ago telling me that heparin takes time to reach therapeutic levels. And this could be an issue with patients who are presenting with acute PE. In this study, the APTP levels were no different at 12 hours after randomization. Should we be thinking about those early hours in a certain way based on this study? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think uh, I, I think this is so, so important point. I think uh, a lot of the studies, and I think this is, if you had to show a practice change from 2002 to 2022, I think what we have learned is that not, I think we used to put everybody on unfractionated heparin not many years ago. And I think that what harms the patients. I think in this study, and even if you go, if you go to the Pietro study or next study that we're going to talk about, only in a PFO study has even a more breakdown of people who are anticoagulated. It's a flip of a coin. It's a one-third, one-third, and one-third. One-third of the patients were below therapeutic, one-third were only therapeutic, and one-third were supra-therapeutic at time of randomization. Even at 24 hours, there were, I would say, less than, I think, 75% of the patients were therapeutic and anticoagulated, even at 12, 24 hours. So this is the big thing that I think we have to move forward and try to put people not on unfractionated heparin. There are very, very minute fragment of the patients who needs to be on unfractionated heparin at the time of their diagnosis. Um, but majority of them, I think, should be placed on Lovenox. There's a paper published in CHESS 2010 showing that early therapeutic anticoagulation saves the lives. And I think sometimes we get carried away in this in, with the treatment, with new fancy treatments with the PE. We focus so much on a reperfusion strategy, we forget the primary point is to get them therapeutically anticoagulated. That should be the goal number one. So if, if listeners want to do one thing right, try to identify which patient you can put them on low anox, subcutaneous form, and try to get them therapeutically anticoagulated because therapeutic anticoagulation saves the lives in PE patients. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the outcomes a little more. This study evaluated a composite primary outcome which included death or escalation of treatment. Ultimately, the outcome was statistically significantly decreased in patients randomized to the combination of heparin plus alteplase. But the composite outcome was driven primarily by a decrease in the need for escalation of therapy. I feel like the need for escalation of therapy can be assumed to be a surrogate for decompensation, but there are obvious limitations to that assumption. How do you think we should incorporate this into our management of patients presenting with submassive or intermediate risk PE? I think I think your point is well taken. I think the I think as I said earlier in the trial that I think uh, decision to escalation was somewhat subjective. But I think if you go into the things that what kind of intervention they did, like meaning that they we end up doing TPA or we end up starting the vasopressors on those patients, or the patient needed more mechanical ventilation or needing more aggressive respiratory support. I think if you just kind of backtrack it and try to kind of identify and put that into a real world, it's not something hard to find out. Meaning that if you have a patient who is not hypotensive and yet, and you would just try to manage them conservatively, which is the right thing to do, I think, as we said again and again, but that patient's hemodynamics are changing slowly, but steadily, meaning that patient whose blood pressure was 110 now is going towards 100. Patient's oxygen requirement is going from two liters to six liters. 
maybe the patient is feeling a little more cold patient is feeling a little more confused so i think those are the signs which are the bedside signs which are not expensive it just needs a due clinical judgment i think if you know their baseline i think and if the patient starts to go on the other end of the spectrum i think we should identify those patients but i think as a limitation of the trial i think the treatment escalation definition was not well defined but the message was simple i think in a real world that if you have a patient and if you know their baseline any change in hemodynamics of those patients um, may trigger an escalation of care. And I think this is where we missed the boat because we absolutely want blood pressure to be 90 before I give TPA. And you say, I'm not going to give TPA till my blood pressure is 90. There's absolutely no data to say there is any difference between 90 to 110, particularly if you know that patient had the first vital blood pressure was 140. So you don't need to wait till 90. And I think that is something that we have, we have recognized that. And uh, the latest trial uh, called Pyatho 3, uh, which is will be recruiting the patients soon, have extended the definition. Just say, example, we take systolic blood pressure, they've extended the intervention timeline between the blood pressure of 90 to 110, just showing the fact that this is a pendulum and this is a swing in hemodynamics. I think that is still a good take-home message back in 2002, uh, where the MAPAT 3 trial was done. So to sum up MAPAT 3, this was a multi-center RCT, which randomized patients with submassive PE to either heparin plus alteplase versus heparin alone, and showed a lower rate of escalation of therapy in the thrombolysis arm. This was without an increase in severe bleeding complications, and there were zero intracranial hemorrhage events in this entire study cohort, with some caveats like we mentioned about real-world applicability. Dr. Raleigh, any last comments on MOPIT3 before we jump to the next study? I think MAPET3, I think I still give a lot of credit to MAPET3 because I think it showed that patients, I think that was one of the very first trials that showed that uh, submassive PE patients can decompensate. So I think before that, the whole dictum was that if they hit massive, that's only when you give TPA. One in four patient main, and I think as Jay kind of mentioned that it was not the death, it was the treatment escalation. That means that one in four patient in observational arm deteriorated. That means that if you have one in four patients with submassive is a potentially likely to deteriorate and how you treat them is a completely different story. But I think the message was clean at that time from that study that submassive PE patients, 30% of them can get sicker, 25, 30% of them can get sicker meaning their treatment escalation. So I think that's what I would remember. Excellent. I feel like we could talk forever about this study and many other studies, but in Absolutely. the interest of time, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to our next study, PITHO. This trial was published in 2014, and then a subsequent analysis of long-term outcomes really kind of stirred things up in the PE literature. We're going to focus on the initial 2014 publication today. This was another RCT that randomized patients with acute submassive PE to heparin versus heparin plus weight-based to nectoplase. Patients enrolled in the study had both evidence of right heart strain and biomarker positivity. This is compared to MAPIT3, which had only around 30% of patients in each arm with findings of RV dysfunction. Dr. Raleigh, should we think about this study population of submassive PE patients as being at higher risk of decompensation? Yes, I think, I think uh, as you clearly stated, there's a definitely difference in um, inclusion criteria in this patient, I mean, this uh, PYTHOS study compared to the MAPET 3 study, because I think PYTHOS study now has a very well-established classification of what we just discussed, what we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, is that the patient needs to have a PE, 
then patient needs to have a biomarker evidence of RV dysfunction, and then patients have an imaging evidence of RV dysfunction. So these are the patients that are which are closely mimicking the current classification of intermediate high-risk PE. They did not include the SPC score in that, but still, I think it had all the variables that you look for to define what intermediate high-risk PE patient would look like. So I think in terms of picking up the patient population, I think this patient population mimicked a kind of a sicker intermediate PE, intermediate risk PE patient that we would like to study in terms of who should be intervened upon and how should they be intervened upon. So that's kind of my early remarks on MAPIT3 versus PYTHO trial population. So that sort of paints PYTHO as a, a pretty sizable RCT, as, as you mentioned earlier, Parth, which evaluated systemic thrombolysis in this subset of submassive or intermediate risk PE patients, and they were at a relatively higher risk for decompensation than was previously studied. And so it was important to look at this, right? Because there were really limited data up until this time on which subset or how this subset of patients would benefit or not benefit from thrombolysis. Ultimately, the outcomes that were measured were actually similar to MAPIT3 in the sense that the primary outcome measure was a composite of death or decompensation within seven days of enrollment. Much like MAPIT3, there was, again, a statistically significant decrease in decompensation, but there was no difference in mortality at seven days. How do you think these two studies ended up showing such similar results, Parth? It's a great point. I think the mortality, I think uh, you have to understand, I think the reason why the primary endpoints are kind of very much either or, right? It's mortality versus decompensation, because if you don't intervene on decompensation, that is directly related to a mortality in the PE world, right? If you, a patient who on your treatment, um, if you allow them just to go without an intervention, like you don't support them with vasopressors, you don't give TPA, you don't give intubate those patients, that patients had mortality directly related to that. So I think as an individual, yes, the mortality was no different, but the intervention rate, which is a kind of a surrogate marker, which is what clinically we'll do, we're not going to let the patient die in front of you when you hack and intervene those patients, support those patients. Uh, so I think it kind of still bring back the same point, the message the studies that were done probably close to 10 years apart showed that patients with intermediate risk PE have tendency to uh, decompensate. And I think number-wise, they were pretty much similar in terms of the trend. I think what was good here, that here the escalation was well-defined. And I think uh, what I think Pytho did good was that they looked at the first seven days, because I think as you see the spectrum, I mean, people with PE, it's less likely they're going to die from that acute PE after three, four days. So I think seven days, I think was even a better cutoff to look at those immediate outcomes because that's where the focus of the treatments are, right? And I think uh, as Jen mentioned that, yes, we looked at the long-term outcomes and there was no difference in CTEF and all that stuff. And I think this study clearly defined that at, at earlier seven-day mark, all that we are trying to look for, that patient does not deteriorate. And once RV deteriorates, we know what happens. And so I think it, it, it was very well done primary endpoint in this study. Really important points. The way that the authors defined hemodynamic decompensation and PITHO was clear, concise, and, and actually quite helpful, um, especially when considering that a systolic blood pressure less than 90 alone is potentially limiting when trying to capture patients that would otherwise have a high risk of decompensation. This more granular definition seems to have made its way into the European Society of Cardiology guidelines as well. 
Let's bring it a little bit to the bedside. Is this something that you have used or have you seen it in practice? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, one of the other good thing about this trial was that RV dysfunction, right? I mean, let's just take a step back because you asked me a bedside question. So I had to answer in a bedside manner, right? Um, because I think bedside point of care ultrasound, right? Uh, it's a huge game changer when we manage these patients with acute PE. And I'm sure uh, all of the listeners are very hands-on with the POCUS ultrasound. I use it a lot as a part of our PE response team at Temple every PE our fellows put in the probe. Uh, you put in the probe, you get the baseline images, we pick up the McConnell, you pick up the clot in transit, you look at that RV dysfunction, and that's what sets up the tone because it's not about who thinks what, it's about your how your RV is handling an acute stress from this. Good thing about this study, they also had, this is a very few studies that actually defines what RV dysfunction on echo should look like. We still don't know what is the best way to have an RV dysfunction, but this at least when you're studying this, it's very important to talk about what is an RV dysfunction. CT is also another coined term here that they use a CT-based RV to LV ratio, which is also very standard. And I think it's very helpful because echo sometimes is not available. I mean, there are studies done that there is a serial lag between a formal echo being ordered and being done in acute PE patient, and that could be 12 to 14 hours versus 90% of the PE diagnoses are made, are made on the CAT scan. So using and validating a CAT scan-based RV2LV ratio definition in the study, I think that also changed a lot of practice because if you are, a patient is being diagnosed with acute PE today and you're using that RV2LV ratio to stratify the patient, it's accurate. It may not be accurate two days later because RV may have worsened or RV may have improved. But if we are trying to make a decision in real point in time, that CT based RV2LV ratio definition is extremely helpful, along with that point of care ultrasound, which picks up a lot of these parameters that they defined in this study as RV dysfunction. Some of them were just identify hypokinesis. Some of them were just looking at the RV size, looking at the RV2LV ratio. Those are easily uh, parameters that either we already have learned or we can learn, and you can easily take it to your bedside practice. And I think what it does is that it gives you a bedside focus, gives an opportunity to get a baseline and if you are following that patient as a part of per team, as a part of your ops unit, or whichever settings you are in, you can always compare and look at how that has changed. If that has changed, your management changes. And I think that's what the escalation uh, is all about. Uh, get the baseline and follow it through. That was awesome. I really like how you brought us to the bedside, back to the randomized control trial, back to the bedside. That was that was incredible. Sure. Really, really high yield stuff in, in that one. So along similar lines, Pytho also emphasized the use of transthoracic echocardiography, so a standard transthoracic exam for the establishment of RV dysfunction. And around 50% of the patients enrolled in this study met the outlined criteria by echo. You, you kind of talked about this, but let's maybe tie a neat little ribbon around this. How should we be thinking about the timing of a formal echocardiogram in, in submassive PE patients? So I think personally, I'll give my two cents on that. I think, uh, one of the, I think this is a great podcast and this is a great platform for trainees to get the message out that is that uh, currently the National Board of Echocardiography, which certifies the cardiologists to take the echo boards, it's also offering the National Board of Critical Care Echocardiography. So uh, that's a specialized board that's offered to all intensivists. And I think we all should take it. I took it because I wanted to change my practice. I took it because I wanted to understand the RV in much more detail 
that our cardiologist colleagues have understood. So I think what it has changed is that the reliance as we all get more familiar with the right-sided echo findings, and I think as we can bring it in more close, I think it helps us because it decreases your overcalling of the echo, that not every echo you have to kind of yell and call the people to get the echo done at X number of time. You can do your echo. And it's kind of some, sometimes it's easy to bridge that gap that, yes, I have done my echo. I think RV is dysfunction. Yes, I want to give TPA. Can you bring in a formal echo to confirm what I'm seeing, whether I'm right or wrong? So then there's a lot of educational opportunities have opened up, I would say, in the last five to seven years because uh, intensivist ED physicians adapted a point of care echo. And a lot of S parameters that I say that I think are reproducible. Looking, yes, the RV size, exact dimensions of RV size are hard to measure because that's like, I call it RV as master of disguise because depending on the axis that you are cutting that echo image on, you may get a different RV size. But uh, overall looking is that RV looks the same size of LV. That's not a hard thing to prove that you have a CT scan to show that and you can have an echo image to show that. And I think you take away that delay in care piece out of it when you use the bedside echocardiogram or a TTE. So I think it's extremely important. People ask me all the time, do I need to get a CAT scan and do I need to get an echo? I mean, do I need, is CAT scan based risk stratification of RV-TLV ratio is enough or not? And answer to that, yes. In first three hours, sure, your echo and your CAT scan should do the same thing. You're talking about next day, your echo is much more helpful because it's a direct reflection of how that patient has evolved versus CAT scan is back in time. Uh, so I think they work uh, complementary and hand in hand together. Wow. I feel totally inspired to study for my echo critical care boards now. <laughs> I wanted to touch briefly on demographics here before we move on. The median age in the Pythos was around eight years higher than MAP at three. Do you think this is a relevant difference, especially considering the adverse outcome seen in Pytho, which we'll discuss next? Yes, so I think uh, age is a big factor because I think uh, in Pytho, I think in MAPET 3, they had an exclusion criteria of age greater than 80, which uh, Pytho did not. So I think that was a good thing. When you kind of look at the mean age differences also, uh, as you mentioned correctly, that the Pytho population tend to be a little bit on the older side. And age and the bleeding-related thrombolysis is a directly proportional in multiple studies at multiple uh, levels that we have studied across. I think this is a great question to kind of segue a little bit from the trial that we are discussing and looking at the bleeding risk scores. So now I think there are two bleeding risk scores that comes to my mind when you're talking about using a thrombolysis in the patient with PE. First score is called PECH score, and the second is called BAC score, BACS score, which was published last year in European Respiratory Journal. I was part of that study. In that study also, which was an interesting study because it was done out of the REACH database where we come up with a score and then we prospectively validated into a command VTE registry. The age cutoff that came out, uh, which puts patient at a high bleeding risk in the patients who are getting TPA with PE was 75. So I think age greater than 75 was one of the four parameters that defined a high risk of bleeding. So yes, uh, I think having an older population, I think are slightly older compared to MAPET3 may reflect of the adverse outcomes. And I think it's real world because I don't know what is old age anymore, right? I think we used to say 65 because that used to be retirement age. Uh, I don't think you can call a 65 year old age right now. So if I had to pick up an age, that would move that pendulum towards the 75 and above, if at all, I have to call somebody in an elderly category. Um, so I think it's a very valid uh, point that age increases the risk of uh, bleeding with thrombolysis. Let's unpack that a little bit further. So 
whenever we give patients with systemic thrombolysis, we obviously worry about that dreaded outcome of intracranial hemorrhage. And we just talked about how the potentially older population enrolled in pytho may have been at increased risk, but the exclusion criteria were pretty stringent, especially when it comes to minimizing the risk of any bleeding complication. Correct. So I think that, I think that, I think that's why that's why people come to me and say, "Hey, the bleeding risk is only X percentage, which is very which is not huge, should scare you." Because if Pytho trial numbers don't scare you, then take about the real world because that's not the real world, right? The real world, I think, in the and that's exactly why we did our study because I know that uh, there is trial criteria which kind of try to identify the patient who should not bleed ever in their lifetime. Because if you look at that exclusion criteria list. They are so long that they don't have enough space to put in the main manuscript. So you have to go to supplementary tables to look at the exclusion criteria. And that's across true across all the thrombolysis trials. So that's not TPA trial, the catheter-directed trials or embolectomy trials. That's the same truth. So I think what you see is the patient who should not have bled and they still bled. And so if you took translate that into real world, in day-to-day world, because there is not a single patient that I can find. It's very hard to enroll. If I had to enroll the patients in the Pytho trial, I'll be, it, it's difficult to enroll in this trial. Maybe I can enroll one patient a month versus if I had to give a patient which mimics the Pytho trial with the bleeding risk, those patients are everywhere. They are at an academic center, they're at a community center, they are everywhere. So I think uh, I think your point is well taken that when you take the look at the bleeding risk in the Pytho trial and try to apply that study concepts into the real world, the bleeding that you get is proportionately higher than what we studied. And I think that's why people, we got scared with the Pythor trial results that these are the patients you expect least to bleed, but they still bleed with TPA. One thing on the same notice, I think I'd like to unpack is that this is the drug was different. So I think a lot of people kind of want to, I mean, should know that the drug that we studied in the Pythor trial was tenecteplase. The drug that was studied in the MAPET3 trial was LTPLase. Uh, tenecteplase is given weight-based, which is, I think, a great, great thing, at least in, even in this trial, but it's given as a push-dose drug. Any thrombolytic, when you give a push-dose push dose agent, time to reach the peak effect is higher. Are these bleeding events related to that? I don't know that. Uh, but tenecteplase is slightly different than eltiplase. Eltiplase, when we give it, we give it a small bolus followed by infusion over two hours versus tenecteplase, which was the drug of choice in the Pytho trial, was given as a bolus. Also to the, our trainees, that tenecteplase is not FDA approved to be used in the PE in the USA. So that's why we didn't participate in the previous trial, the Pytho trial. I don't think any of the US sites were involved. So it's a slightly different molecule. We don't, we the drugs, eltiplase and tenecteplase has been studied head to head in the stroke world, um, in the MI world, but never had been studied head to head world. But just to remember, those were two different drugs in two, the tr two trials that we are discussing today. Great points about the drugs and the bleeding. I didn't know that and didn't pick that up. So, all right, PJ, why don't you sum up Pytho for us before we close out our discussion? I am happy to. So the Pytho trial was a large multi-center RCT and it randomized intermediate risk or submassive PE patients with both RV dysfunction and biomarker positivity to heparin, versus tenecteplase plus heparin. There was a decrease in hemodynamic decompensation in the thrombolysis arm, but that was counterbalanced by a lack of a difference in mortality at seven days and an increased risk of major and minor bleeding, including intracranial hemorrhage. 
I'll add here that the long-term outcomes for this trial are also really interesting and quite pertinent. The study is linked in our show notes for this particular episode. And as a spoiler, the long-term outcomes did not show any difference in the incidence of RV dysfunction or CTEF many years after the initial diagnosis of acute PE. And that's regardless of the therapy that was received. Also, a lot of patients in both arms were still functionally limited many years after their PE diagnosis. It is important to note, however, that this study was not powered to detect these outcomes specifically, but they're probably the best data that we have in 2022. Parth, how did we do? I think we did we did excellent, guys. This this was amazing. I think uh, just to top it off, I think there is there is still uh, hope and excitement in 2022 with the PE world with uh, three big RCTs uh, going on. Uh, one of them is Pytho three, uh, and I think uh, and I think we should mention that because that that they they combine the best of the two worlds. So the Pytho three is also going to be multicenter randomized double blinded randomized trial in Canada and uh, European countries where they're gonna use half dose TPA. So they're gonna use half dose, which is 50 milligram of TPA, also the weight-based, because in PPE, we never did the weight-based drug in intermediate high-risk group that we talked about. So um, that trial was supposed to start soon and will finish in 2017. Uh, so that's PYTHO3. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again in future on the trial. And there are two RCTs. Um, one of them is comparing the suction uh, versus thrombolysis based on the catheter-based treatment um, in the intermediate high-risk PE trial. It's called um, PRLS trial. And then there's another HIPYTHO trial. So the word PYTHO is not going anywhere. Uh, there is another trial called HIPYTHO trial, which is comparing anticoagulation and catheter-directed thrombolysis in a large randomized way, which has never been done before. So three RCTs have been just announced um this year and uh, a lot of u.s sites are participating in those those three trials so yes future is bright and we'll have some answers on some of those interesting topics uh, in hopefully a couple of years or more a lot of excitement abound in the pe world so before we move on last but not least if you had to assign an impact factor similar to what we use for various journals in our field to these two publications on how much they've impacted everyday practice for our patients with submassive or intermediate risk PE, what impact factor would you give these two trials? I think uh, at least 15, both of them. And I think uh, the message is very simple, right? That intermediate risk PEs can decompensate. TPA is not a benign drug. It comes with a bleeding risk, right? And I think both, both the trials, even 10 years apart, were focused on identify the patients who are at the cusp, identify a spectrum. If they are on a spectrum, intervene early because TPA also saves life. That was an incredible summary. Thank you so much, Parth, for joining us for this episode. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here, guys. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the ATS Reading List Podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society section on medical education. If you enjoy this content, please like, rate, review, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thanks again, everyone, for listening and have a great day.